Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from sunny, harmaton-free Accra. Yay! Okay, folks, I know it's been a months-long story, this harmaton, but it's finally gone. We had the most lovely rain a few nights ago. And my plants are lovely. They're not dusty anymore. So we're just happy that the season is changing. It's, I think it's kind of changing all over the world. Not over the world, but you know, spring is coming, all that good stuff. So yes, you won't hear me talking about dust anymore. And it's a beautiful day in Accra. Meanwhile, my guest is coming to us from a whole nother climate, but I'll let her talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> she is best known for her cultural awareness and savvy. She has worked with award-winning creatives, activists, and CEOs, notably women and members of underrepresented communities. She has secured more than 300 media placements globally from CNN, Vogue, La Figaro, Jeune Afrique, MSNBC, and The Hollywood Reporter, as well as partnering with well-known festivals such as the Toronto Film Festival and and Afropunk. In nine years, she has been instrumental in helping transition creatives and public personalities from their local markets to a global audience. She single-handedly helps them build their brands in the U.S. using social media platforms, shaping their messages in order to connect with new audiences. She provides connections with the relationships she's built over the many years she's been working and uses these connections to successfully intake key brand partnerships that continue to be the cornerstone of her work and her client careers. She firmly believes that access is what stands between a person and an opportunity, and she is committed to providing the keys that open the doors to her client's success. Yasmina F. Edwards, welcome to the podcast. Yay! Yay! Hello! Bonjour! How are you? Bonjour! I'm very well. I'm very well. Welcome. So let's jump right in. Let's get started. And my first question is always, where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Well... Where should I start? So my name is Yasmina F. Edwards, and I'm an entrepreneur. And I'd like to say first that the F stands for Fagbemi, which is my maiden name, which is a Yoruba name. When you hear my accent, you just must be like, where I'm from? I was born and raised in Poitiers, a small city in the west of France. And I've been living in New York for more than 20 years I consider myself actually a true New Yorker. I am an American citizen, but New York comes first for me because I just believe that New York is, is in its own category. It's truly an immigrant place. So you're local in New York. Where, where are you local in New York? I'm local in Westchester. And I'm looking at my window right now under the snow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't miss that, but I'm sure it's pretty as you watch it fall. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty. It's, you know, north of New York. I'm 20 minutes from Manhattan, you know, so that's that's where I'm local. Okay, great. And so what would you describe as your craft? Well, my craft is I am an entrepreneur. I am a, I'm the founder, you know, in nine years that I became a full-time entrepreneur, I uh, launched several companies and I, uh, my current company is Ife Agency. Ife is a small boutique uh, marketing consulting firm. And what we do is uh, our mission is to help underrepresented community, specifically women, 
and we help them transition from a local to a global brand by providing them access to our network and our U.S. network. So when I started my first company nine years ago, and that's probably what I was, I'm known for, I launched my first management company, talent management company, EGMNY. And what I was mostly doing is helping French talent of African descent uh, transition to, uh, to the U.S. markets. So that's actually how the story of my entrepreneurial journey started. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so you kind of prompted me to go right into this question of why the where. So how did you come to be living, working, and playing where you currently are? How did New York become the home? Ooh, I've been thinking of this question. And um, as I said earlier, I was born and raised in, in France. And I'm going to go back to my uh, heritage, which I didn't actually mention. I mean, I just said that I, I was Yoruba. And the reason why I, uh, you know, I describe myself as Yoruba is that I truly believe that my African heritage is defined by the Berlin Conference of 1884, you know, where European countries divided the African continent among themselves. And many ethnic groups were split into different countries. And for instance, my father... Uh, is Yoruba and he was born in Benin, Porto Novo, the south of Benin. And my mother is Yoruba mm. and she was born in Nigeria. So in my case, you know that the B- Republic of Benin is a French is a French speaking country and Nigeria is an English speaking country. So I am a bit of that product <laughs> of that divide. And so my grandparents on my father's side, I buried in Benin, but my father, great-grandfather, actually, you know, moved from Oyo, which is in Nigeria, to Benin because at the time it was a kingdom. So I always carry that inside of me. And, you know, people always, you know, when I tell Nigerian that I'm Nigerian, they always look at me like, oh, I'm I thought you were from Cameroon, you have an accent. And I'm just like, guys, listen, you know, Africa is bigger than hub. It's bigger than what we think it is today by the division of um, of what separates us. Uh, I think we have a history and we have to take that into consideration. So now why I'm here today in the U.S., because I, was, I, was, I just mentioned my heritage and uh, I was born in France and that's a separate conversation to say the why my mother ended up ended up uh, in France but on the, in the, sh- on the short version you want the short version because she's the Nigerian yeah she's the Nigerian yeah. My, my mother was my grandmother late grandmother eldest and at the time my grandmother didn't have a lot of money and she decided to give my mother when she you know back then uh, you literally say okay uh, you are my sister-in-law you're doing well you're um, a teacher. My grandmother was illiterate and uh, gave my mother and my, her sister-in-law, my grandfather's uh, sister, was living in Senegal. So my mother ended up living and moving to Senegal and stayed there for many years. And Senegal, you know, after the colonization, was a country under the French governance that was doing well. And she grew up there. But her siblings ended up moving to the U.S. as student. And my grandfather's nickname was actually uh, l'American, the American. He always loved America. And his dream was for his children to study here. 
So my aunt, my mother, younger sister, uh, moved here as a student to study pharmacy in California. And believe it or not, when they sent my aunt to study here, none of them at that mm. point had set foot in America. So they sent her here. And then, you know, she became a pharmacist and my other aunt and uncle became uh, follow through. And then back then, my mother w- were living in France. And for me, I was always looking at America as a possibility because my uncles and aunt were living here. And, and I started coming here on vacation. And the first time that I came here, I knew that that's the place that I would be living one day. So for me, as a little black girl, French black girl growing up in France, America was always a possibility for me and an opportunity. So how did your parents meet? Did they meet in France? And and how did you get to that small town? How did you get to such a small town? No, they didn't meet in France. My father was, was born in Benin and then ended up going to Senegal. Back then, after the colonization, people were moving there to study. So he went there as a student. And that's where he met my mom. And when they met, they ended up moving to Poitiers as student and got married. And then my father you know, got a job, a job, started his career at the United Nation. And that's an, enter- an entire new, a different story. But because he was working at the UN, uh, we live a little bit in Senegal, actually. And then my parents made the decision that it was better for us, my sibling, my sister and my brother, to to be in a stable environment. I do, they didn't believe that it was the right thing for us to be tr- following my father and to settle in Poitiers. So you settled and then your father kept traveling or? Yes. My father now was appointed in different places in the world. Uh, in many African countries, but you know, I was lucky. We were lucky enough uh, during the summer we would go and visit. So for me, very, very wherever he was, yeah. wherever it was. So for me, growing up in France as a French girl, the African continent was very much embedded into the way we were raised because of my father's work, and my parents were very clear. No matter where you're from, you you French citizen, wherever you are, don't ever forget where you're coming from, where you come from, where your ancestors are coming from. So uh, so in the house, you know, I, uh, I spoke Yoruba. Uh, and so my, my African culture, <laughs> despite my accent, was definitely there. It was never something that was far away from, uh, from, from, where we, where, from where we were. Okay, okay. So Poitiers, you said you, that your parents went to study, so I'm sure it's like a university area. So were there a lot of Africans or was it very diverse? You know, there's, I know um, France on the whole, there are places where, where migration happened for Africans and North Africans and, well, Sub-Saharan and North Africans and other nationalities. How, how was Poitiers? So Poitiers, when my parents moved to Poitiers in the late 60s, it was a town full of Africans who actually chose to go back to Africa. Okay. And when there was more opportunities for Africans, in the, in the late 60s, it was an immigration. There was two types of immigration, the workers, but there was also the immigration of people who were actually coming to study and going back. So... When we were there in the eighties, it was Poitiers was a small town, mostly white, known for its universities. And in my case, I was probably one of the few who has a mother who were there, because otherwise, mostly there were students without their parents. 
France, as you know, it's a country with a lot of issues with people who look like me because it's very different from the U.S. France doesn't see colors. They don't track identities. It, this is something that I just don't do. But I had a very great childhood. You know, it was a small town. I had friends. Yeah, I experienced racism, but in a way that was so subtle at the time that I didn't realize that it was racism until I moved here. But I was just there during the year, during the summer I was gone. But again, once I came to the U.S., I knew that Poitiers would be just a footnote in my life because I already knew that I was moving here. And it's so interesting for me to have this conversation with you because when you know that this is not the place you're going to stay, I think that your mindset is completely different. You, you don't absorb challenges the same way because I knew that I would, be coming, I would be coming here. And at the time where coming to the U.S., it was not from France or I was vice versa, was not as easy as uh, it is uh, today. So... So then how did you land in New York? How did that happen? So you did your school there and then you'd been coming back and forth and doing quite a bit of traveling. And and so how did New York just become, how did you land? Yes. New York wasn't supposed to be the town. I, my, my family was in Jersey and Maryland. So that's where I was spending the most time. But I had an internship for six months and I ended up doing an internship in New York. And I stayed in New York for six months and I was like, damn, <laughs> this is where I'm going to be. Okay, got it. And I did come back after college. So it wasn't the plan uh, at first. The plan was to stay with my relatives. And it's just that, you know, New York in the late 90s was just an amazing place from a cultural standpoint. Hip hop was coming was coming, uh, was coming up. Art was everywhere. I mean, because I'm seeing New York now and I've seen New York through so many transitions. New York was a place where artists actually can survive and create and live without worrying. So this is how New York came along. And I, I came here, I met my husband, I, I built a life for myself, started working in corporate America, and I never, ever look back. <laughs> so now you're here, so you're, so now you're a New York City woman. And you mentioned you worked for, in corporate America. So I'm interested because I love how you, you know, when I saw your name, I just like, oh, those are initials. So I just thought it was YFE, but it's Ife, which is so awesome because Ife is a Yoruba name. So share a little bit about how, first of all, you, you, you transitioned, you landed in corporate America and then transitioned into being your own boss. And then how you went from your first company name to Ife. So... Actually, my first company name was EGMNY, Edward Global, oh God, EG, uh, Edward Global, Yasmina Edwards. Anyway, that was my first company. How did I transition? I met my first client basically nine years ago. And from there, uh, I had the opportunity to manage that client uh, who was in France and to bring her to the U.S. And that's how I made the decision in 2016, around that time, to really, you know, move full time as, a, as an entrepreneur, even though that I was already an entrepreneur in 2014. Ife, believe it or not, didn't resonate until I wrote it down that it was named after my, my father's village. Because there's Ife in Porto Novo and there's Ife because it's the same. There's an Ife in uh, Ile Ife. In fact, in Ife. 
Leif and Yoruba, that's actually how it's just that it's just, uh, you know, Yasmina, Fagbemi, Edward, it's just serendipity. I, I didn't come up with it. This is my name. Yasmina is my, it's my initial. Ah, yes, it's your French pronunciation, the Y, the E. Yes, I get it. Uh-huh, yes, uh-huh. but that's why you'll see uh, on my Instagram, I, I put it phonetically. Ah, okay. Yes, yes. Uh, but it's just uh, it's just serendipity that it was it was the same pronunciation. If I wanted to make it the same pronunciation, but I wanted to keep my name for my next company. I wanted my name to uh, to be my company, and I decided to use my uh, my initials. Nice. And by the way, um, I've said this in I think another episode, but I'm Ghanaian, and the Gas are Gan people come from Yoruba land, and Ile Ife is the area typically where most guys come from. So we are truly sisters. <laughs> yes, we are. You know, and let's remember that uh, Yoruba kingdom was from Nigeria. You know, we know today all the way to Ghana. So I'm not surprised. Exactly. Yeah. When, when we finally get all of our own stories back, we'll, everyone will have no questions about the transition. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm working on it. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, tell us a little bit more about that because I didn't mention it in your your bio, but you have worked on it. And so tell us about that project, which is now a Netflix feature. So tell us about how you came to the project and how it's going. So as a, you know, I'm a multifaceted entrepreneur. So, you know, I have my consulting firm, but I also, my first, my first passion is, uh, is storytelling. And when I launched my talent management company, I also started transitioning into producing content because when you're in the business of entertainment, it uh, just comes to you. And I realized that actually this is where I had the most impact. It takes time to do a film. It takes time to, to do deals, but it's so rewarding. So Bigger Than Africa, that's what you are referring to, which is a documentary about the Yoruba and how they transcended you know, 400 years of slavery and was filmed in six countries, you know, Bahia in Brazil, Cuba, Trinidad and Tobago, Nigeria, Republic of Benin, Benin, and also in the U.S., Toin Ibrahim Adekeye, uh, who is actually the director and wrote the film, has been working on this project for more than seven years. He actually is based in L.A., but he's a Nigerian. He was born and raised in Nigeria and always had a passion uh, for his culture. So when he made the film, I met him once the film was done and he needed someone to help him package it and sell it. And that's how I started working with him. And I was it took just a few years to do the deal with <laughs> to do the deal with Netflix but I must say that it's one of my proudest work because I always said that Bigger Than Africa is a film that's been directed, produced in, by African. And it's how his story and it's from the gaze of an African director. And the film will stand on its own 20 years from now, 30 years from now, because this is our history. So that's that's how I came uh, across the project. And I think that history, knowing our history and doing historical peace, it is so important so that we can own our narrative. And I am very lucky that I was involved because I'm Yoruba. So obviously I learned quite a bit. It's It just makes a difference when you know where you're coming from. <laughs> so I'm curious as a content creator, you know, it's 
so much of a challenge to break into the big distribution channels, right? So for this project to be picked up and distributed or have Netflix as a platform, can you give us a little bit more insight on and even tips on how we as people of color, Africans, get into that space and have the kind of visibility that will continue to help us to to produce content that we can also access on those platforms? Well, the, the film is available, on, it has been available since last May, 2022. It took us in conversation for three years, you know, because everybody watched this film. Every celebrities of, of African descent watched the film. So we went through a distribution channel. But this is what I'm going to say. Obviously, where I was three years ago and where I am today is completely different. My access are completely different. I understand the game better so I know that any project that I have, which I'm, I'm in development now, I would get an answer much faster than I had three years ago. So the tips are as follow. You need to have a strong project. It needs to be, you know, I always say that show business is a business first and foremost. And it's not about when you want to sell to a platform, everybody wants to see their bottom line. Yeah, it is about knowing people, but it's also about give, doing something that is qualitative and something that will track an interest. But I think there's so many, so many platforms today and selling a documentary as opposed to sell a series or a feature is so different. Documentary is really hard. I'm not going to lie. I don't know if I'm going to do another documentary. And if I do, it will be probably with Bigger Than Africa because there's still other countries that we haven't covered and we have so much footage. But documentary is, is really hard. We rarely break even. Uh, you really want to do it for other reasons than making money. So, so it's just about, you know, understand how the game works, making sure that it looks professional, you have a synopsis, that you have a great presentation, that you're able to pitch it. That's, that's the tips that I can give. And then obviously, obviously after that is access. Who are the people that you can put it in front of and they can say yes or no? Because this is really, at the end of the day, this is what makes a difference. And what people are selling today is their access. That's the currency. <laughs> That's what the influencer label has has created for us is just access. It's the currency. So, yes. Interesting. So when you mention access, tell us how you and where along your path you began to understand and start to work on that. Because I think we started to talk about your, your life before being an entrepreneur. And so would you say like... How, what inspired you? Because you mentioned just business, but I'm, I'm assuming you had all kinds of potential other gigs before you, you decided this is my space, you know, working with creatives, etc. So how did you start to recognize access as your key to opening doors? And, and where did you start to, to build? So first and foremost, I'm a people person. And I've always built relationships because I just like people. And I've been known for being a connector. So is, I never thought about it about the, uh, as a business until, believe it or not, just to be 100%, 100% recently. And when I say recently or two years ago, I just felt, because I work with people and I understand as a Black woman how challenging it is to have a seat at a table. And, you know, as you know, I started in corporate America and then I moved as an entrepreneur. Living in New York, being Black, being French, actually opened a lot of doors for me. 
compared to other black people because I sound, according to the world, exotic. I didn't realize that until, you know, I, I, I started observing. When I got into, I became an entrepreneur, I started actually leverage my relationship from my old world of, of being in corporate America and, from, and with my new world because I started building it. And when I started, I started from the ground up. You know, my client was not known here. So we had to start from somewhere. And it was like a hustle, but it was also at the time, you know, 2014, remember Obama was president, Black Lives Matter was, was coming up. Ah, yes. Remember the ecosystem? Uh, social media was becoming a big thing. So a lot of people that I've known back then now are doing super well and I'm super, super happy. So that's really when I started building my relationship, but not thinking about business, more thinking about, okay, I know this person and I can get to point B, how to get to the other, you know, to, to this new person so I can get to another point B. And it just dawned on me literally when I launched my second company that, whoa, Yasmina, you did quite a bit, you know, and there's people out there who have agencies and have an office and big names. And that's basic, basically what you've done in nine years. They've done that in 20 plus years. And this is really what they're selling. But the difference between many of these agencies or these people, I'm not going to name names, you know, I have the pearls of the, I have the finger on the, on the culture. I understand culture. I understand this new generation, and pretty much I have the same type of uh, access, but probably a bit more credibility mm, mm-hmm. because I'm living it. <laughs> I don't pretend to to use it as a trend. And that's really when I realized that my access is actually my currency because it was not just entertainment, uh, it's finance, it's, you know, it's press and it's global. And it's diverse, probably across different sectors as well. So that probably yes. is also okay. Yeah, and it's global, right? Yeah. So, so that's a good point to ask you about global speak. So we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and how or why you come to value it as a global speak. I have a saying which is luck is when opportunity meets preparation. I don't know if this is the, the answer for uh, for this question. I think it, for me, it's a really uh, an English saying that says everything about who I am and what I do as a, as a French immigrant in the U.S. That, you know, there's no, I believe in luck, you know, there's sometimes you come across people. And I say people because for me, luck, obviously, I, no, I don't take for granted the fact that I'm healthy and that I can still pursue my dream, that I live in a country that is actually where women can do what they want. I never take that for granted. But my luck is I got opportunities and I was prepared and to always go to the next level, you know, because sometimes I say, oh, yes, I, I would hear you. Yes, Mina, you're so lucky. Um, yeah, but I work super hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, right. You know, so 
I work super yeah, hard and yeah. um, whenever there's opportunities, I try to, you know, I try to be as much prepared as I can be. Right, 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 right. I mean, that's so interesting you say that in it. And it makes me think about my days learning French. So a big part of when I was studying French is the idioms, les idioms, right? So similar sayings that, you know, you were meant to learn because, you know, most, most cultures speak in idioms, you know, they don't say, you know, everything's not so literal. So is there something that's similar as an idiom in French? Oh, I don't know, but I'm going to make you laugh. Oh, I don't know if he's going to make you laugh. I make a lot of grammatical errors. No, now I, I'm comfortable with it. But I used to say, oh, crack my husband up. I would say, I want a pounding cake. <laughs> <laughs> I want a pounding cake. <laughs> Instead pound of a cake. pound cake. Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of things. The ING, <laughs> I mean... And God knows, English is so much easier, uh, even though the English is not my native language, it's becoming my native language because I dream in English now. I rarely dream. Oh, I, I've been dreaming. Really? When you start dreaming in a, in a language, you, you know that the transition has been made into that language. And I've been dreaming in English for many, many years. I can't remember when I dream in French. It's, such, it's so much easier than, English is so much easier than uh uh, than French because French grammar has so many exceptions and uh, there's the feminine, there's the masculine. So I feel sorry for people who are learning French. Even the French people are making mistakes. So the French native. Tell me about it. Mm-hmm. But there's still things that I don't get right, like the ing. I mean, I don't say pounding cake because every time I say pounding cake, then I, you know, people will start cracking up. So I just know that that's not right. So that was the yeah. right. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> okay, so so tell us a little bit more about where you're taking your your company and your vision and the, the kinds of people that you're working with these days. Well, I said that I would love to break new ground for the next generation of underrepresented CEO. That's really my goal, because I think that now we have reached an era where there's an opportunity to build wealth for underrepresented community, for Black, for black entrepreneurs specifically, for the African diaspora. And because now information is here, we have access to that information. So now is how we're able to execute and implement that. So that's my my vision. But actually, it's always been my vision because when I launched my talent management company, it was, you know, bringing client uh, talent from France of African descent was actually fairly new. You know, France was still known as, you know, <laughs> very white country. And it's, you know, it took a while now. It's obviously clear that France is a diverse country. And so for me, it's always been my passion, my mission in life for us to really grow and build wealth. And wealth for me is not about money. Wealth is for us to be able to achieve anything, to get money, to produce our content, to create jobs, I mean, to just be able to to do things that maybe our ancestors didn't get a chance to do. And especially for women, because I think that uh, women in America, specifically Black women, are really leading. And But we're coming from 
when I think about my great-grandmothers, uh, my mother, my grandmother, great-grandmother, they were strong women. You know, when I think about my grandmother, uh, who was an illiterate, but understood that education mattered and made sure that her, her children uh, came to America, she had already the vision and she never had set foot in America at the time. And for me, I believe that I want to replicate that with the tools that are at my disposal, my knowledge, my access, my experience, and making sure that I surround myself with the people who can help me get there. Mm-hmm. 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 So thinking about some of the, you mentioned, you know, this, this generation and, and how content creation is key, but content creation is truly changing. So, you know, this chat GPT thing, AI is all a buzz, particularly in the last few weeks. And so there's, you know, this new sector of people who are creating content that helps people create content with chat GTP. So the creative is in a kind of a, a perilous place right now where, you know, everybody, first of all, I think it's everyone is creative, right? So some people are, you know, and so we, when people say, oh, I'm a creative, I mean, like, okay, yes, I am a creative. So yes, but, but everyone is creative. So now this barrier of being a, an actual commercial creative is, is those, those walls are coming down. So as you look at the clients that you're working with and what is now seeing, we're seeing possible in the art world and in the creative space with AI, what, what are your thoughts? How do you see that kind of impacting your ability and the ways that you even present talent? And also in the African context, because a lot of this is, you know, very Western and very easy to con- conceptualize in the Western space. But how does it translate into our, our African, our Caribbean and our non Western existences? So as you know, I work with two types of clients. I work with entrepreneurs who provide services or product. And to be able to sell and build a community, you need to have a storytelling. You're not selling just product. And then there's creative who are screenwriters and create stories. I truly believe AI is great, but authenticity will never be at the mercy of AI because AI is really standard. People want true stories. People want to hear someone's experience. And AI can never do that. AI can facilitate, can expedite a process, but AI will never, ever replace your story or my story. So honestly, I am not worried. You know, I'm working on two, three projects at a time right now, two stories, and uh, I'm not afraid of AI. What is AI now? <laughs> unless, unless if the, uh, the the screenwriter give AI the story and do some editing, AI would never come up with the, the story of what, what happened. So I'm really not worried. But what is worrisome to me about AI, this is what I'm going to tell you, is that a doctor, a student is becoming a doctor and cannot take an exam and is using AI because that has an impact you know, because there's certain jobs you, that is becoming dangerous. You can't fake it. You can't fake it. And uh, but in a creative area, no, I I think that you know people will people are not stupid. People can can see through what's real and what's not real. And talent always prevail when you are authentic. 
Yes. Thank you for that. Okay. So let's talk about mindset. This is a, a good point to talk about that. So I ask you to share what your mindset hack is. So that is something that you practice, something that you imagine or something that you've heard of. So what is your favorite mindset hack or an innovative mindset hack? I don't know if it's innovative, but there's two things that I always do. I work out, so I box. You know, I always practice sports since I was young. So I, I box. I, uh, that, that's, that helped me focus and I have a lot of energy. So to release my energy. And the other thing is I don't get distracted, no longer get distracted <laughs> by the noise, whatever, whatever it is. I was reading something yesterday is if nobody clap for you, always remember to clap for yourself because people don't know when you work in the background what you're doing. People just watching, clap for yourself. I try to clap for myself every day and because I know that it takes time. I've been, in, I've been in a, in a, you know, an entrepreneur for nine years and that you work in the background and nobody really knows what you're doing. And it's not because nobody knows what you're doing and they don't see anything concrete that you are not doing anything. So that's that's a bit of my of my mindset arc. And the third thing is you tell me that I cannot do it and I'll show you that I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> the can do mentality. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Tell us a little bit more about your boxing experience. So how did you how did you kind of gravitate towards that? So you said you've been athletic. So how did you gravitate towards the boxing side of things? Well, actually, I started boxing almost nine years ago. I, did, I was thinking, yeah, I always thought about boxing. And the first time I said, oh, I think I want to do that, believe it or not, I read a long time ago an interview about Iman. Iman, I just had a child, a second child, and she was like a certain age. And they were asking her, you know, she said that it was super difficult for her to lose the weight. And she decided to go boxing. And she's like, that was like 20 years ago. And she said that that was so helpful because when you do boxing, you work every body. And I kept that in the back of my mind. And fast forward, uh, I really started boxing when I became a full-time entrepreneur. I decided to do it. And it was the best thing that I ever done because boxing is very, you know, it's not, I, I work, I work with a trainer and uh, you really use every inch of your body but you also have to be focused on your adversary. And for me, that's really important because I'm always in a fighting mode. It, it gives me the opportunity to say that my fight has always to be the same, is to go to the next level. And when I'm on a ring, in a ring, that's really how I, uh, I operate. So that's why I love it. Next level. Yeah. <laughs> next level. <laughs> Nice. Nice. Okay. So you gave us a little bit of insight into the who you are when you're not working and building companies. And I think you also, before we get to that, I know you also have some new projects that you're working on. So what's new and next for you? So the new projects next, I'm about to uh, launch a masterclass. If all goes well, it will be in, uh, in May. Uh, I don't want to say the date yet in case it changed, but the premise of the masterclass is is we're going global. So in a nutshell, uh, I'm doing this with a platform, Black Women Own. People, when they think about business going global, they think that it only applies to a limited number of uh, people, of companies, or 
it's the game of a Fortune 100 company, but in fact, it's not. I mean, I'm a, I'm a product of uh, doing business globally. And also, I think Black Americans drive the culture worldwide. And I think that it's time to show them that Black diaspora is looking up somehow because America is still a country where the economy is driven by consumption, that the African diaspora, there's an opportunity to connect and to build relationship and to do business together. So that's the premise of my, uh, of my, of my masterclass. And we've been looking, uh, we've been identifying different entrepreneurs for the first, the first one that we're launching, which is going to be complementary from different territories to connect them and to see, you know, and the goal is to teach them the, uh, to give them the tools, how to do that. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, doing business is, doesn't mean that it's a hashtag and you do logistic. There's so many things around that. Uh, there's building relationships. And that's really where I'm coming in, how to help them. So that's that's a big project that I that we are working on and I'm very I'm very excited about because it's new and nobody really has done it. And I, I have the credibility because I've done it and I consider myself as a transcultural. You know, it's not about speaking several languages and having a degree. It's about actually living it and experiencing it. And I did. Mm. Okay, that's great. That's great. So we'll be looking out for the master class and um, and had a joke. We're going global, exactly. <laughs> Which I mean, it's so fitting for this podcast. I'm I'm really so happy that you're able to join and, and kind of talk about the work that you're doing and how you're getting it done. So the Yasmina that's not working and making sure that people of color, women are getting access to all kinds of opportunities does more than just boxing, I'm assuming, in her own time. So I like to ask this question, are you a reader, are you a watcher, are you a listener? And what are your favorite reads, watches, or listens? Yes, I am a reader, but not as much as I would like to. Now I read a lot of content online. I, uh, it's a different type of reads. Uh, and I'm so, you know, I'm, I can't wait to go on vacation and get all the books that I read. But there's been books that had a huge impact uh, on me. During the pandemic, I read quite a bit when we were in confinement. So there's a few books. One of the books that I read during the pandemic that I absolutely love is Stacey Abram, Lead from, from the Outside. That was a book that I really love and I really respect the work that she's done, her fight for the, for the vote suppression and how she single-handedly uh, turned the state of Georgia. Uh, she didn't win the, the governorship, but the senator won. And I think that uh, building a community, for me, is a blueprint also of how we can, community can change things and to build how effective community building is. So that's a book that I really enjoy. Many, many years ago, I don't know if you, I read a book because I was thinking about it and it would remain one of my favorite books because it gave me an entry into Black America in a project, is Sister Soldier, No Disrespect. The first time I read this book, I was super young, I can remember, and I was like, wow, her voice. I had no clue. And there was no internet by then. I mean, there was internet, I'm sorry. There was no social media. And I'm just like, the, the book was amazing because she launched, she, uh, she, she released a book uh, during the, uh, the pandemic. And if you read the book today, it's still valid. 
you know. So so no disrespect from Sister Soldier will remain one of my favorite of all time. I cannot do this without mentioning uh, our great friend, my friend, uh, Nana Brew Hammond, uh, an anthology of African and diaspora voices. And the last one, I need to mention uh, a French writer. His name is uh, Gabriel Soleika, Le Cri de l'Innocence. And it's about... Le Cri de l'Innocence. Mm. Le Cri de l'Innocence, The Innocence cry. It's about this slave called Solitude. Uh, Solitude, who was hanged a day after she gave birth in Guadeloupe. It's an amazing story. More to come about that. Wow. Okay. That's great. I'm so happy that, yeah, the French, I like that because I'm sure it's available. It's been translated. I may try to read it in French, actually. You know, I find that translated yet, but it's in French. Okay, because I find that English is, you know, a fine language, but there's so many sentiments that are not well translated from other languages. And I just find French to be, you know, they call it a romance language because it's kind of poetic. There's there's that kind of poetry in the flow of it. So, yeah. It is. Yeah, so those are a bit of my book. And I, I listen post. I'm a, an avid listener of podcasts. Uh, I'm now, I, I would say, I listen to podcasts more than I read. But, you know, I love Gary Vee because uh, he's straightforward. This is someone who didn't go to college, built a business, multi-million dollar business. And I think it's important for uh, people to to know that. My, my real college degree, I got it when I became an entrepreneur. It's based on experience. That's my real, uh, you know, my real degree. Um, I like also the diary of a CEO, Stephen Bartlett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. Mm -hmm. I think that he has great guests. And also, you know, I want to give a shout out to uh, Munia Ham. Uh, she had a podcast, uh, Resilience, Ambition and Engagement. It's in English, but I like it because she's French, of you know, French uh, of Moroccan descent. And sharing a story as a French woman and her work is interesting from a French perspective because it's a different experience, but it's also a universal experience. So that's why I like her podcast so much. It's in English. Okay. So we have great show notes again for you folks. So be sure to check out the show notes. Yasmina, where can we find you? That also be in the show notes. Where can we find you? Well, you can find me on my website, Yasmina edwards.com on social media and my social media is yasmina f edwards is pretty much the same on all my social media instagram i live on instagram and on linkedin i'm very also active on linkedin because on linkedin i i write a lot okay oh nice 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 so we'll look we'll look forward to that so this has been so fun thank you for making time and and sharing sharing yourself with us so before we we sign off for today do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience well thank you for having me i think that uh it's nice to to have a a platform where you invite people from uh every place in the world. Uh, I think that the world is becoming smaller thanks to uh, to the internet or thanks to the digital world and what else. So I'm happy that I had a chance to, to share a bit of my uh, journey and, and uh, anyone who wants to reach out, uh, you know, we already gave my information. Yes, me So thank you. 
Okay, wonderful. All right, folks, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us Tuesdays with new episodes at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm so happy that this month is March. We're featuring her stories. And so I'm happy to bring to you so many dynamic women who are doing awesome things around the world. And uh, stay tuned for our next story. So until next time, bye for now.